Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Right now on Politics, Greg Villiers with us. Thrilled he could be with us with AGF. He grew up in Concord, New Hampshire. So we're great that Mr. Villiers can give us a little perspective there and look forward. And his really important research note this morning, Kevin Cirilli uh, with us as well. Uh, And let us dive in uh, right now. Kevin, on to Nevada. Who goes to Nevada with the up? Is it Klobuchar doing better last night? Or is it really Bernie, Bernie, Bernie as they land in Las Vegas? Bernie, Bernie, Bernie. Uh, look, and, and Klobuchar now has some new momentum. She's headed to New York City today, Tom, to meet with her donors. She says, hey, she's got get the checkbook out because she's got some momentum after a strong third place showing. She beat Elizabeth Warren. Remember, this is nearby Massachusetts and New Hampshire. Elizabeth Warren finishing uh, ahead of former Vice President Joe Biden, who had a terrible night last night. He went right to South right. Carolina. But the big takeaways, this is Buttigieg. Buttigieg and Bernie Sanders. I mean, think about it for a second. No one was even knew who, who Pete Buttigieg was a couple of years ago. And now the fact that he finished in second place behind Bernie Sanders. I think we've, we've got some data okay. from Iowa and New Hampshire. I'm learning every moment by Kevin Cirilli. Let's go into Nevada minutiae. Greg, you're going to love this as well. Yep. You can put it in your research right. note. Uh, this is off of Cirilli. This is the morning must read out of Vox. Let's bring it up uh, right now. It's real simple. This is Saturday the 22nd. Cirilli working seven days uh, a week. The idea that the the early voters will not be physically present to participate in the Nevada caucus. They will be asked in advance to rank up to five candidates by their Iowa-like order of preference. Each precinct location will be given an unopened deck of cards. That deck then has to be shuffled at least seven times by Kevin Cirilli, and then each candidate's group will draw a card. The high card wins a delicate. Kevin, you've <laughs> got to be kidding me. Well, you know, look, I, I know my friend Greg Vallier is about to say that we're going to have a broker convention. But I, I, I respectfully am going to say that, I, that all of my reporting would lead me to indicate otherwise. And here's why. For as complex as this process is. This is exactly, and I know there's differences between the way the Democrats and the Republicans right. do their business, but this is exactly the conversation that, we're about, that we had in 2016. For as complex as the process is, Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg are still getting the most votes. And for all of the most of America who are not as politically obsessed with this process as people like the three of us are, yeah. uh, a win is a win. And you get okay. the most votes, you win, you Greg, get momentum, and you go on. Greg, push against this. I mean, Warren's yeah. going to drop out, <laughs> Biden's going to drop out, Steyer's yeah. going to drop out. How do you get a brokered convention with only two or three candidates left? I'm not sure Biden drops out quite yet. He could do okay in Nevada. He could win South Carolina. He could win a plurality of delegates on Super Tuesday. A little too early to write him off, but it's worth noting he has never won a primary in three presidential campaigns. So so moving forward, I I do think that there'll be two or three serious candidates. Not sure there's going to be a brokered convention, but I do think there'll be a disputed convention where the first ballot winner is not clear when they get to Milwaukee. Uh, Greg, I have like 25 questions here in like two minutes. So first, why is Biden in so much trouble and how does he get back? Energy. Doesn't have enough energy. Doesn't show enough energy. It's, it's as simple as that. Right. But you can't. I mean, how do you get that? I mean, it, it, this is a personality. 
Right. I mean, he's, you know, Bernie Sanders is an energetic 78 year old. Biden is not an energetic 77 year old. And people know this. So I, I do think he's pretty much finished. I think Elizabeth Warren is pretty much finished. But you, there's one name we haven't mentioned and we've got to mention. And that, of course, is Michael Bloomberg. Uh, I know you have to do a disclaimer. But with his resources, I think Super Tuesday could be really pivotal for him. Okay, the disclaimer is that Michael Bloomberg is the founder and majority owner of Bloomberg News, including, uh, of course, Bloomberg LP. So, uh, Kevin, what happens next? What, what's the next step that we're actually looking out for? And why is everything so up in the air? I mean, we're talking about broker convention. We're talking about, you know, no clear winner. Uh, is there a Democratic problem right now? I mean, it's a dysfunctional family. Both of the political parties are. We do. We go through this every four years, Francine. You know, no offense. I mean, here in America, you know, that, that we're kind of used to that. But here's what I'll say with regards to what Greg Vallier said about Michael Bloomberg. Joe Biden has competed in Iowa and, and lost. He competed in New Hampshire and lost. Michael Bloomberg hasn't competed yet. And as this moves forward to Super Tuesday, you're going to hear some sharpened political attacks. We've already heard yeah. them. And based upon my reporting, point blank, you're going to be hearing aggressively more pro political yeah. attacks mm -hmm. against the former New York City mayor. Uh, and, and that's going to happen over the next three weeks. We're going to have some, some new guidance right. over the next three weeks. But again, Buttigieg competed. He won. Bernie Sanders competed, he won, and a win is a win. Right. Kevin, thank you so much. Greg Vallier, one final question. With all that yep. you've done for us over the years, Concord, mm -hmm. New Hampshire is in your soul. <laughs> New Hampshire is so, so, so right. different than the rest of the world. Why do we put such a focus on your Concord, New Hampshire? Well, a lot of, I think, sensible uh, voters who uh, really get into it and follow it carefully. I have to think, though, final point, it, it, that a lot of these voters are depressed this morning because as one faction or another leaves Milwaukee unhappy, it's a good story for Donald Trump. This has been wonderful, and Francine's right. We had a million questions uh, as right. well. So Greg Villiers with us, uh, and we yep. say thank you so much, and Kevin Cirilli, thank you uh, as well. We come out of the New Hampshire primaries with Senator Sanders on top. It's on to Nevada. Joining us now, Kate Moore, head of thematic strategy at BlackRock's global allocation investment team. Good morning to you, Kate. Good morning. Just a quick note on politics. Yeah. I don't know if it's complacency, comfort or otherwise, but on Wall Street, no real worries about Senator Sanders either. It's too early to start caring. They don't believe he can win the general. Or they believe if he does, he can't govern and he can't get things done if he's in the White House. Which one is it right now? Too so early? I'm voting for option three on this one, which is, you know, there is some skepticism that Bernie's going to actually, you know, make it through to the White House. But the real conversation amongst market participants right now is that even if he does, he won't be able to enact a lot of the policies that he has laid out. So, you know, we saw this a lot in this administration as well. A, a lot of talk, a lot of headlines, in this case, a lot of tweets, but, you know, much more challenge actually enacting radical policies than would otherwise have been feared yeah. or suggested. Within the fear is, and I read CBO yesterday, the summary on the new trillion dollar deficits modeled out to 1.3%. And I know the president's budget's a political document, et cetera. Within your thematic investing, yeah. do you care about trillion dollar deficits? You know, we have to think about our time horizon on this one. The deficit certainly matters, but over shorter time periods, and by that I mean measured in quarters, not necessarily years or decades, there are much more interesting themes for us to invest around. Dynamic changes happening across a variety of sectors and in consumption patterns.
I remember late last year, people saying that at the end of this year, there would be turmoil, volatility uh, heading into the 2020 elections. Right. Right now, it sounds like everyone is shrugging off anything. Nothing matters. The elections don't matter because nothing will get done. The deficit doesn't matter because in the short term, easy money will cure all. What matters? What's the sort of potential uh, sort of downside here that could cause some volatility that people are looking at? Yeah, I mean, I think the big thing to watch here is going to be whether or not companies are able to continue to generate earnings growth throughout a lower growth environment. I say that because while we do expect that there might be a little bit of multiple expansion in the equity market given incredibly low bond yields, I think the majority of the returns from the equity market this year have to come from earnings. And this is going to be the big question mark. Now, I'm pretty constructive on this. I think consensus actually is more in line and we're not going to see as dramatic of a downward revisions to earnings expectations as we have in previous years. And I've been pretty encouraged by the stability in fourth quarter earnings, even during a fairly rocky period around trade and concerns around politics. So I I don't want to sound Pollyanna, but I I do expect that we're going to end the year higher from here. John, are you laughing at me? No, I'm smiling because when we talk about earnings, I'm just wondering whose earnings we're talking about. Microsoft and Apple right now, almost 10% of the S&P 500. And they matter. They matter. I know they matter. They matter a whole lot more than they did a number of years ago. Yeah. So when we talk about earnings, whose earnings? One sector, a couple of companies, a handful of companies. Yeah, okay, this is a completely fair point. What, another thing I've been focused a lot on is what, what companies are giving us in terms of guidance, not just for first quarter 2020, but also for full year. And if you look at where guidance has come in, the vast majority of the uh, more positive guidance and consensus is coming from technology and communications and technology-enabled companies across a variety of different sectors. So, you know, you're right to point out some of those big behemoths. They are driving a lot of the, you know, the uh, bottom line growth. That said, I think if we have stability and growth, low interest rates, and people don't really worry so much, as we were just mentioning, around politics and geopolitics, then there's going to be, I think, a broader swath of consumer companies that, that hold up. We also like things like consumption demand around home builders, for example. Mm-hmm. Have you done, and this goes to Ben Laidler being with us uh, very bullish the other day, and James Bevan and CCLA very bullish this morning, and you, I think, have a very constructive tone as well. When you take out the five glory stocks, mm. you X out the, the trillion-dollar valuations, what's the actual multiple of growthiness out there right now? It's not as elevated as we think, is it? Well, look, I think people pay up for the liquidity and the balance sheet of some of these behemoths. We know that's the case, but they also, frankly, deserve the higher multiples. Okay, but the PE on Amazon is 76, and if you take it out, presence 93. If you X that out in eight other stocks like that, you got a more reasonable valuation, right? A more reasonable valuation. But Tom, you got to remember, I grew up in emerging markets. And at that time, if you if you were really valuation sensitive, you would never have owned something like Baidu in its early stages, which consistently traded at 80 times forward. So you have to be valuation aware. When, when, she brings that up. I didn't own Baidu. Lisa loaded the boat on Baidu. Off when oh, yeah, clearly. <laughs> How's that uh, that regret room going? The regret room's going great. We're, <laughs> yeah, we're, all, we're all cash today. With 
with Amazon <laughs> on its way to a Doug Cassian 5,000. Well, I'm trying to square the picture that you're talking about here, yeah. uh, Kate, with this sort of developing story that we're seeing reflected by bonds and by oil prices. And we're just seeing uh, OPEC just now slashing forecasts for global oil demand, uh, blaming the coronavirus, but oil prices were under pressure anyway. How do you right. sort of pair these stories of slowing global growth with robust earnings and earnings growth? At what point does this dissonance become too much to handle and one kind of uh, takes the upper weight here? Yeah, so there's a lot of focus, I think, at the headline level around some of the older drivers of the economy or the older signals we would have. We've been talking a lot about what is oil telling us? What is copper telling us? What are all of the base metals telling us in this environment where people are worried about the growth impacts of the coronavirus? They're not asking themselves, hey, how much gaming revenue um, are the Chinese tech companies getting as a result of everyone being quarantined at home? They're not asking, you know, what kind of media spend are we getting as a result of people not being able to go out and spend in retail stores? We are sometimes asking the wrong questions. You remember how much we used to focus on, say, pre-crisis and immediately following the Baltic Dry Index? Is that even relevant anymore? We fall back into these patterns of looking at these indicators or the pricing around certain old economy um, metrics that I just don't yeah. think are are telling us where we're going. Larry from BlackRock emails in. So nice to see that Kate's on today. Kate's not on to talk markets, folks. She is the official surveillance Westminster dog show critic as well. Indeed. The retriever, as you have Cora, made the finals, like the seven finalist dogs. But the foo-foo poodle took the trophy again. It's an outrage, isn't it? I don't want to insult the foo-foo poodle owners, but I will say that retriever should have taken the prize. It was gorgeous Good-looking dog. Beautiful confirmation. Why, what has happened to this 144-year institution that they can't go with Arthur Levitt's Labrador Winthrop or Vet Bill, something normal? <laughs> Wait a minute, Vet Bill's foo-foo. Oops. <laughs> Anyways, what, can, what happened to a retriever winning the trophy? You know, we have a little bias against the popular dogs here. We need to be conscious of the fact. Springer facts. Spaniels. I mean, things, things, uh, dogs that are amazing pets that are very well owned seem to not really right. resonate well with the judges. I think that's a little unfair. I'm, I'm getting a comment too from Larry from BlackRock. He's <laughs> writing in right now, and he's uh, he's mentioning that he really likes the analysis and thinks that this really affects the uh, the broad investment strategy. It's, it's, it's great. I'm I'm really glad to hear. Did you really buy a Gucci leash? I mean, Gucci put out earnings today and they killed it. Do you have a Gucci leash? Core is not that foo-foo. Okay. What I will tell you, she's a big fan of upcountry for all of you dog owners who know uh, she has many ribbons, ribboned leashes uh, for different seasons. I can't. And we got the hearts out for Valentine's we Day. We do. Okay. Indeed. Okay, Kate, thank Moore, you. Thank you for the dog <laughs> update. Kate Moore of BlackRock. Right now, let's do this. Let's get into an important discussion on how you find comfort and just like in the old days, owning a stock, James Bevan runs very serious money for CCLA, conservative money, boring money. And they're, you know, they got all the fears and the worries that we all have. And yet he says, stay invested. State the bull case now, James. State why quiet money can be comfortable in equities. I begin with the premise that the benefit from equity ownership is about long-term participation in an underlying business, paying a sensible price, and therefore, in effect, expecting an earnout. And I look at the price that you receive in terms of the forward risk premium for being in the equity right. market. I simply think that's too high. And in the context of the alternative places where one can uh, 
have one's money, the, the cash market, the bond market, the real estate market. I think valuations of equities right. are too low. I think valuations should be materially higher, and therefore people should sit with equities. Okay, this is really critical, James. I'm going to go all CFA on you here right now. In a dividend discount model, there's an x-axis, and you go out five years, seven years to a terminal value. Have we extended out our timeline to value equities? Are we looking out instead of three years, five years? Or instead of seven years, are we valuing out 10 years now because of this great disinflation? Tom, what I, what I think any investor can do is they can list the consensus numbers from IBS or any other entity. Bloomberg runs a very good service of, of consensus data collection. Take the five-year market numbers and then assume that after the first five years, companies get linear participation in nominal economic growth. So that's, that's then the terminal growth. If you then toss up all those cash flows and say, what's the discount rate that takes those cash flows back to today's price? Well, that number at the moment is 6.3% in excess of the long government bond yield. Now, that to me is a huge payment for risk. Mm -hmm. I think that we can also consider what is the fair payment in the context of lead indicators and current credit spreads, and I think that's no more than 5%. So I would be expecting the discount rate, in effect, to fall because prices have risen. So I am certainly expecting that fair value is materially above current Okay, prices. you're getting a clinic there, folks, on institutional equity valuation. Then how can James Bevan buy the marginal share of Amazon with a forward PE of 76? Well, I, I look at uh, the valuation of Amazon, and I look through the price earnings multiple to the free cash flow yield and the long-term growth of that free cash flow yield, and I still see a share price that is below what I calculate to be the value for the company. That allows me to believe that the so-called very expensive stocks are actually structurally cheap, and indeed are cheap in the context of what people have been prepared to pay in prior peaks of expensiveness. So I've looked at prior periods where growth stocks have done well, so periods of relatively slow growth, low inflation, low money rates. And I see valuations that have ranged between 45 times and 72 times. On that basis, Amazon is demonstrably cheap. The second issue is that if you deduct the relatively expensive six stocks that dominate market indices, the valuation of the residual S&P 500 falls from 18 and a half times that many have described as expensive to 16 spot seven times, which I think looks arguably way too cheap in context of the growth that's available right. from so many other world-class companies in that market. John, I have to translate. Spot is for point for oh, American thanks, viewers. Thank thanks, you. Tom. Thank you very much, James. I always forget that, that it doesn't translate I'm well so sorry. into America. Let's move on. Linked to everything you've said, how great is the pressure to own U.S. mega cap stocks right now? Uh, I think that for short-term performance, the UK mega caps are uh, absolutely supported by a following wind. I mean, when one looks at the financial results that came out for the big five, excluding Netflix, I look at a beat against Q4 earnings forecasts uh, that is something in the order of 14 spot 3% earnings surprise, 
with 21.5% in round figures year-on-year earnings growth. Uh, that compares with the rest of the index, excluding those top names, with surprise of 3.9% and uh, earnings growth of zero spot 5%. Now, why would one not want to own fabulous growth companies on valuations which are arguably reasonable? If you subscribe to the view that I do, the bond yields are staying low, cash rates are only likely to get lower in the context of what Jerome Powell has been saying and that both growth and inflation are going to remain very modest. James, there is a question about whether the Fed model still works, whether bonds and stocks can be compared in the same way. And this is a question that is increasingly important as people use the low bond yields to justify their purchase of stocks. I mean, at the end of the day, an earnings yield is not the same as the yield or the coupon that you get on a bond. And there is risk embedded in the stocks that is not there for bonds. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. And I do think that there has been a significant shift in the way that the market thinks about debt and sustainable levels of of debt interest costs. And if you subscribe to the view as peddled by the central banks that sustainable equilibrium bond yields are lower, it doesn't mean you're going to make more money because those bond yields are stuck at those ultra-low levels. So the journey of making the path to those lower yields, which obviously means higher prices, is over. But it does mean that the arithmetic in favour of equities is thoroughly supported and well-placed. Hey, James, always great to catch up with you. Really, really thoughtful, insightful stuff on some of the big names in the US equity market after a monster rally through last year that continues into this year and climbs a wall of worry. James Bevan there, CCLA Investment Management Chief Investment Officer. Neil Shearing is a capital economics, just an outstanding group of economic analysis. John, let me bring him in here and you can uh, go what wisdom on him. And what's so importantly is, is Neil, before he was at capital economics, was with His Majesty the Treasury, was an economic advisor and worked on the Sussex's finances before they went to Canada. Are you trying to get some people something, in trouble? <laughs> something like that. Neil Shearing joins us here on The Economy. John? Neil, great to catch up with you. Capital Economics Chief Economist. Neil, let's talk about some data out of America. Didn't get a whole lot of coverage in the last 24 hours, but job openings just started to go the wrong yeah. way. What do you read into that, Neil? Well, it's obviously only one month's data at, at this point. Uh, and obviously the payrolls, the numbers that we had at the start of this month, um, were pretty strong, and the labour market itself um, seems to be in reasonable shape. Uh, and the revisions that we were expecting to the back series of that payrolls num- uh, that that series were a bit better than, or, or rather, less less bad than we had feared. So I wouldn't read too much into it at this point. I still think that we're in this Goldilocks period of low but positive growth, no inflation as far as the eye can see, at least in consumer prices, and therefore low interest rates. Of course, that c- continues to bid up asset prices. Uh, and if I was yeah, worried about the future, I wouldn't be worried about the labor market now. I'd be worried about the long-term consequences of the continued the, melt-up in asset prices. Neil, the political tension that we see, frankly, in Germany, in Ireland, in, in Irish elections we've barely touched on, and what we saw last night in New Hampshire and on, it's a Goldilocks period, but within all of what Roger Boodle and you at Capital Economics do, how Goldilocks is it? I just don't buy it's a Goldilocks period for so many Americans. Well, it's a Goldilocks period if you're in the markets. It's a Goldilocks period if you're a fund manager managing equities or bonds. Yeah, or we call that in America, Neil, the haves. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. What about well, your exactly, triple cash yeah. fund? Uh, the regret uh, room. But, but underlying this, of course, is the fact that the, the, 
although the pie has been growing, the share of the pie going to labour has been squeezed and the share of the pie going to capital um, has increased. And that's why it's a Goldilocks period, you're right, it's a Goldilocks period for asset prices. It's less of a Goldilocks period, far from it, for, for labour, which is why we've seen this long squeeze um, on, on, on labour share of income in the US. We've seen real, real incomes, real wages uh, in the UK and other parts of Europe struggling to go anywhere. So Neil, at what point does the data that we get shake us out of the Goldilocks period? Which data set really has the potential to do that? Well, if we run with this idea that it's a Goldilocks period for asset prices, not labor, there's two things I think that go wrong uh, that potentially upset this. One is, um, in the short term, a fear in the markets that inflation is starting to return or is just around the corner, uh, or indeed that central banks themselves may start to uh, try and actually actively target higher higher inflation. Don't forget, we've got policy reviews in, by, by the Fed, but also the ECB this, this year. So a fear of, the return to, of a return to inflation would be the, the short-term thing that would be most likely, I think, to, to spook financial markets. don't think it's particularly likely uh, myself, which leads me to the second thing, which is over the longer term, you get a continued period of very low interest rates, a commodities monetary policy, we're already 10 years into this very, very period of very, very loose monetary policy. At some point, uh, we're, we're putting a lot of faith in markets to allocate capital efficiently. Um, and I think at some point something breaks because there's a bubble in Chinese property, in U.S. car loans, in leveraged loans, whatever it is. You know, we all know the familiar uh, points of, of, of potential stress. But at some point something breaks and, and we get another asset price collapse. Uh, and we know from the last two downturns. Uh, that it's asset price falls that, 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 that cause the big, the big economic problems. So, Neil, we uh, know so that this Fed watching. has no appetite to do anything with rates to tackle this issue. Are we going to hear a whole lot more about macro prudential policy in America? I suspect we will, and I suspect... I mean, we're, we're doomed in this, in this um, sense, I think, to keep fighting yesterday's battles. Uh, macroeconomic policy will be targeted... Uh, macro prudential <clears throat> policy will be targeted in terms of preventing another housing bubble. And I suspect the next problems won't be in the housing market. They'll be somewhere else. Um, yeah, we've just well, give us an idea. Uh, well, so corporate debt would be the first place I would look at. Corporate credit spreads are incredibly narrow now, close to the lows that we saw uh, in the run-up to the 08 crisis. Um, we've had even the IMF sounding off about the risks in leverage loans, a small part of the market that could go wrong. Chinese Chinese property, that's the place. I mean, if you're looking for black swan events from the coronavirus, property sales in, in China have collapsed, uh, and it's the one part of the economy that's extremely over-leveraged. Developers in particular look vulnerable, yeah. so that could be the next black swan. When you talk about the corporate debt market, we did get a warning from the Federal Reserve last week. They said that they were going to increase their stress test parameters, particularly for leveraged loans, as well as corporate debt more broadly. So it does seem like that is an area of concern. But going back to the real economy, I'm wondering what could tip the scales with respect to earnings, with respect to the fundamentals that actually causes some sort of default cycle that we really haven't seen? Well, there's nothing on the horizon at the moment. If you look at, if you think about previous um, substantial economic downturns, what's caused them? Inflation shocks warranting policy tightening by central banks. As we just discussed, the Fed looks like it's happy to sit on the sidelines for now. Uh, big fiscal contractions because there's a fiscal a budget crisis that doesn't look particularly likely. The bond markets look like they're tolerant of of high levels of debt and deficits at the moment. Um, oil price shocks um, again that doesn't look particularly likely on the horizon. And then asset price collapses. And at the moment, particularly if you look at housing, which is the big one, doesn't 
it doesn't look cheap, it doesn't look very expensive, so it doesn't look like a, a bubble. Um, so it's difficult when you scan the horizon right now, I think, to, to see the obvious signs that something's fermenting on the, the horizon. Um, but I think you run the clock forward 12, 18 months, two years, three years, and I think those risk factors will start to will start to return. And Neil, before we let you go, just one quick final question. Day two for the Federal Reserve Chairman. Anything left for you to ask the Fed Chair? What would you like to hear today? What I really want to hear is, uh, you know, we know the Fed is target, you know, has this 2% inflation target and full employment. How real is that? What are they really targeting? Are they going to tolerate much higher rates of inflation? Um, because we know that in a world where inflation's are, uh, where interest rates rather are at their effective lower bound, a period of deflation um, is a much bigger risk. So do they try to tip the balance the other way, start tolerating or even targeting higher rates of inflation, either explicitly or implicitly? Um, and that has a big implication well, on the bond markets, but also other, things, uh, other assets too. Neil, that's brilliant. Are we going to have an implicit monetary policy guessing future inflation? Yeah, I th- I, we, we may well do because, of course, I don't, they, this policy review won't change the Fed's mandate, uh, nor will the, the policy review in the ECB, uh, the ECB change its mandate, um, I don't suspect. But it could be, like you say, it's implicit that the Fed actually says, you know what, we're going to allow the economy to run a bit hot for a while we're gonna, because we actually want inflation uh, and inflation expectations uh, to be higher. Uh, because we know that if we've got rates at one and a half, two percent, there's not much room for us to cut them. Um, if the economy, if the economy does, yeah, yeah. Neil, great to catch up with you this morning. Neil Shearer in there, Capital Economics Chief Economist. Driving forward the discussion on the equity markets, we do that with Anthony Dwyer of Canaccord Genuity uh, right now. State the case, Anthony, what you would do right now. It's been a great bull market. You've participated. We've had Ben Laidler with his great call up 20% December of 2018. He's ratcheted back, but he's still bullish. Have you ratcheted back the enthusiasm? From the index level, Tom, I have. Actually, I, I adopted back on January 20th a more neutral view because the market had gotten kind of so euphoric and ahead of itself. Now, some of that optimism and excessive overbought condition has been worked off. In other words, you know, when it goes up in a straight line, it, it doesn't do it forever and it has to pause. And I think internally, although the record, the, the market indices are making records, I think internally it's kind of going through a correction on the back of global growth fears with the coronavirus. So what am I doing right now? I'm really not doing much. I'm not trying to force it until there's better signals as to what it actually means to the global growth. So, Tony, give us a sense of valuation here. Tom and I, we discuss often about, you know, we looked at the move the market, equity markets had uh, in 2019 with little to no uh, earnings growth. Where are we in valuation and kind of how critical is it this, for this, for the C-suite to deliver corporate profits in 2020 growth? Well, I think it's going to be, obviously, it's always critical. The market correlates most directly to the direction of earnings. So it ultimately, it's got to be positive. But Paul, this is one of the most misquoted things, I think, that exist in finance. When people look at the, the for example, the price-to-earnings multiple, the historical average or median is somewhere around 14 and a half to 15 times. So a 20 times earnings, or 19 to 20 times earnings, people would say, oh my God, it's so overvalued. But you really have to break that down 
based on where inflation and interest rates are. So when you have very high inflation, you have a very low market multiple, you know, eight to nine to 10 times. When you have very low inflation and interest rates, you have a very high average market multiple. So when the core inflation rate is where it is today, but yeah. you know, right around 2%, historically you trade it 19 times. So I would, I would say it's fair. Have you figured out ratios if you take out the you know all the stocks that you single-handedly pulled up to trillion-dollar valuations? If you take out the five, the six, the eight, whatever it is, stocks that are ginormous, what does the market cheapness look like then? I don't do that, Tom, because that's data mining. Because it's sort of like, you know, I got asked the question yesterday. You know, is inflation under or overstated? And for me, I don't care. It's what the, I know what the Fed uses. Right. And it's the same thing with the P.E. multiple. Then if I do it today, I have to go back over the course of the last bazillion years and figure out yeah. what stocks drove it then. And I just don't think it's fair. I just think <clears throat> the valuation of the market is fair. It's not really expensive. It's not really cheap based on interest rates. And earnings are unclear because of the global growth environment with a coronavirus outlook. That's being made evidence because what time what's interesting are these huge mega cap stocks that everybody's you know, watching drive the indices to high levels, they're actually now considered defensive stocks. That's, that is a huge, when I say that out loud, it <laughs> seems and sounds insane, but predictable, strong growth with good liquidity is considered defensive now. So we're in this environment that this could get really weird where the indices do nothing, but there's an offensive trade underneath it, meaning you know, you're buying the, the banks, the industrials, and the non-software uh, technologies. Tony, are you concerned that there is a narrative out there that, you know, what we're seeing in equity markets, well, across financial markets in general, is really liquidity-driven with just so much easy money out there uh, in the marketplace? It, it is, but it's not, it's, you know, people have this perception, and it's portrayed in the media like the Fed is providing all this liquidity that's buying stocks, and it's not. What, what's happening is low inflation is equaling lower interest rates. Lower interest rates means that banks, not banks, uh, means companies and individuals can borrow money at extraordinarily low levels. So instead of having a, you know, I, I, my original mortgage, and I know Tom, you know, since, you know, he's a little bit older than me, just a touch, um, you know, my <laughs> first interest rate was 8% on my mortgage, and I had to pay points to get it. Today, if you're getting three, you know, you do three percent on a bad market. So, you know, the low level of inf inf inflation is really driving the liquidity. I think it's it's easy to, and it's frankly a little bit lazy to say, oh, the Fed's providing this liquidity. Yeah, it's really low interest rates. Well, to go back to the first time I did a mortgage, which is, you know, you know, I think it was 64, 65, or something like that. It was the Nifty Fifty. Are the six stocks this time are Nifty Six? Yeah, I think so, Tom. And I, I think that's really, I think that's the message here is that you've gotten this, you've gotten this bump up in the, in the S&P 500 and the other major indices on these mega cap trillion dollar stocks. The rest of the market's just kind of been sitting there, right? And I, you know, from when I, I beat myself up when I, you know, I feel like I've not given the right advice, right? So when I go neutral on January right. 20th, <laughs> You know, I, I'm thinking, wow, what a dummy. The market's at an all-time yeah. high. But then when you look at the small-cap stocks, mm, the semiconductors, yeah. the banks, they're below where that was yeah. then. So the market's been correcting. So there's this real shot that that nifty 50-ish kind of thought process yeah. 
holds the indices flat while the underlying stocks actually yeah. start to get a little better. Okay. The theme today, Tony, away from the equity markets is when did camp get expensive? Do you remember when camp was cheap? Like, you know, <laughs> you threw a small check at a camp and said, here, take, uh, you know, junior for two weeks or three weeks. I mean, <laughs> Buddy, don't you remember? My camp was my mom and dad saying, go out and play in the woods. Yeah, go <laughs> play. <laughs> that was, the that was your camp. <laughs> Watch out for the snakes, and then you yeah, wouldn't exactly. go to the woods then. There were no snakes, but go to woods. Tony Dwyer, thank you so much. Camping as a child in the dangers, the weeds of New Jersey. Anthony Dwyer, Ken Genuity. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.